Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 130 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Timothy McCall. I met Timothy McCall years ago when I first started working at Yoga Journal. I actually edited a column that he wrote for us about health, and I remember being very nervous editing that column the first time because he was a physician, and that just seemed intimidating. But Timothy was also our regular medical editor, which means he vetted our stories to make sure they were medically accurate, and we relied on him a lot. So Timothy practiced medicine for about 10 years. He practiced internal medicine in the Boston area, and then he quit to devote himself full-time to investigating and teaching yoga therapy. He is a certified yoga therapist by the International Association of Yoga Therapists, and he's the founder director of Yoga as Medicine seminars and teacher trainings. He has a book called Yoga as Medicine, which I highly recommend. And he has a new book that we talk about today that he's self-publishing called Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. So he was diagnosed with throat cancer just about two years ago, and he wrote a book about the experience, and I wanted to talk to him about it as well. I, I think it's really fascinating to speak to someone who has his background and really, really understands Western medicine, and then for many years has also devoted himself to integrative medicine and Eastern medicine. So I wanted to hear how he navigated those two forms of treatment, and then also how his yoga practice supported him through treatment and after, and kind of how it helped with his mental and emotional state. So it was just really fascinating to talk to Timothy. I'm so grateful to him for sharing his story, and I think that it will be really helpful to listen to. And it's a very inspiring story, too. If you enjoy the podcast, I will do my reminder that I always do, which is please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful for people to find it. And it's just a really good ego boost for me, basically, you know, and so if you want to make my day, if you want to make my day, just, just leave me a good review. I'm trying to do the ironic humor like my husband, but I think he's a little better at it than me. So I'll just stick to my, whatever my humor is. Okay, everyone enjoy the interview. So thanks so much for being here today, Timothy. It's so nice to, to reconnect with you. Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel the same. Yeah. And I, I'm really grateful that you are going to tell this story. And I learned about it actually through Facebook last year. You announced after you had been through the bulk of your treatment, you announced that you had been in treatment for head and throat cancer. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, basically I had an oral cancer. It was a cancer that affected my left tonsil that then metastasized the three nodes on the opposite side of my neck. So sometimes they just call it head and neck cancer or an oral pharyngeal cancer is the you know technical medical name. But basically it's it's related to the human papillomavirus, which is the same virus that's implicated in, in cervical cancer in women. Hmm. How did you discover it? Did someone discover it? Did you was it like a, a dental visit or did you did something feel off? Uh, and and you raised an interesting point because this is a cancer that's mostly been under the radar. It's a relatively new development that men 
particular, it happens to some women as well, but men in particular are developing these oral cancers that are related to HPV. And it's actually not on the radar of most dentists or of most physicians. And it's starting to slowly change. But one of the things I experienced was that the doctors I was in contact with, including my best friend from medical school, who's a brilliant physician, we're clueless about this. Nobody knew about it. It's starting to come into consciousness only now. The way I found it was that I do the practice uh, that Ayurveda recommends for one of the Dinacharya daily hygiene practices, which is scraping my tongue. And once in a while, I'll have a coating on my tongue. Maybe it lasts a day. But I had one that was probably a month straight. And I wanted to see what that was about. So I got out a flashlight and went to the bathroom mirror and poked the, you know, the flashlight in there and looked. And I saw the coat on my tongue, but more concerning was probably a dime sized little bump on one of my tonsils. Wow. Now I have seen enlarged tonsils thousands of times in my medical career. And I should say, it's been 20 years since I practiced medicine. But when I was practicing, I saw it all the time. But I never saw only one enlarged. There was always both of them enlarged. Hmm. So immediately I thought, hmm, this is funny. And I started to, you know, I actually took a photo of it on my phone and texted it to my buddy from med school, who's a great doctor. And he didn't think that much about it. Well, you know, he, he unfortunately was ignorant as was I. So then what happened? How did you know? Did you just make an appointment anyway and have someone check it out in person? I actually had two different primary care doctors who, who looked at it. Neither one of them knew what it was. And or one of them thought maybe I should see an ear, nose and throat doctor. But he was an older physician who was kind of retiring from practice and couldn't even recommend a particular ENT doctor to see. And the other one didn't think much of the tonsil, but I, part of the story is that I subsequently developed enlarged lymph node or noticed an enlarged lymph node. And then he was very concerned about the node, but he didn't know what to make of the tonsil. Hmm. So again, I was kind of up against ignorance. The enlarged lymph node came in the context, sorry, this is going to be complicated. No, it's totally fine. Came yeah. Of my second bout of Lyme disease in a month. I was living in the Hudson River Valley of New York State near the Omega Institute, which turns out to have a big tick problem and a big Lyme disease problem. And because it happened in the context of the Lyme disease infection, I thought it was probably due to that. But then with the combination of the nodes and the tonsil, that was more concerning. And I waited a little bit, but then I got it evaluated, ended up getting various tests culminating in a biopsy of the tonsil, which diagnosed the cancer. So, I mean, the reason this is, you know, you say, oh, it's a complicated story. But I think if if you've been through cancer, as I have as well, you learn that the diagnosis phase is often really mysterious and circuitous and it takes a while and it's stressful. It sounds stressful and it is stressful. And of course, coming at it as a physician, I also have certain ideas about practice. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, my primary care doctor who didn't know what to make of the tonsil was concerned about the lymph node, wasn't really that thinking that it was related to Lyme necessarily, wanted me to go to to a surgeon and have it biopsied. 
But one of the principles, you know, I wrote a book years ago called Examining Your Doctor, which is about kind of how to be a smarter patient. And one of my rules is, you don't start with invasive tests if you can get information from less invasive tests first. And so I didn't want to go straight to an open biopsy by a surgeon in his office who was just going to fish a needle in there and try to try to biopsy. And that, by the way, was I was smart to have that reservation. I ended up insisting that they do an ultrasound first. Ultrasound was suggestive. Then I insisted they do an MRI that was also suggestive of cancer. At that point, I went in and had the biopsy done as my primary care doctor wanted with one crucial difference. He was going to have a surgeon stick the needle in blindly in his office based on feel remembering that those lymph nodes are very close to the carotid artery, so it's Mm. not necessarily a great idea. Whereas what I ended up opting to do, as I had learned by doing research, was to get it done with ultrasound guidance. So as the needle's going in, they're they're tracking it the whole time, where is it exactly much less likely to cause a problem. Right, 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 right. Yep, I've had one of those too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you bring up, that you were a former practicing MD. How did you go about then? I'm just really curious. This is really just my personal curiosity here. How did you go about then finding your care team? Based, you said you were based in the Hudson River Valley at the time. So- I was based in Hudson River Valley, but, but you know, the thing is I had moved there only about six months earlier. And I mean, I had some friends in the area, but I didn't really have that well-developed a social network there, a support network, and my family was all elsewhere. And I kind of came to believe that that area of the country is a little bit of a medical backwater. Just what I experienced in the run-up to the diagnosis, which happened there, just certain things made me think this was not going to be the right place for me to be. I also was thinking, hey, if I'm about to have to maybe go through chemotherapy and radiation therapy, where I was living in the countryside, it was going to be a 45-minute to 50-minute drive in the winter in upstate New York, you know, for radiation therapy, God knows, knowing how I would be feeling at that time. So I kind of had a revelation. And that was my brother was a professor of medicine at a major medical center major medical school in the southeastern United States, which I don't name in the book. So I, but I I went there because it was a, you know, first rate academic medical center. And, you know, of course I could, my brother and his wife are empty nesters. So I was able to stay in my nephew's old bedroom. It was two miles from the cancer center. The climate was a lot more hospitable to be there in the winter. And of course I was with family. Right. And it's got to be a way better medical center with one downside, which is they're great in conventional medical care. They know nothing about integrative medicine and are not really even that interested in it. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, I had to do that all by myself, figure it out, advocate for myself, not just take everything they gave to me. And so that, and that's part of the tale I, I tell in Saving My Neck. It's just mm-hmm. like I had, and as part of what made me think when I got to the end of it, like, 
I can't really write about this because, you know, a lot of people are confronted with a situation where they want to bring a more holistic perspective into their health care, into their cancer care, whatever it might be. And yet they don't really know how to do it. And their doctors are not that supportive. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. I want to get to that in a moment, but I have one more sort of logistical question. No problem. Which is, I ended up at UCSF for my care. And, you know, I bring this up only because apparently one out of three people are going to be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. So I I bring this up just as kind of a, a public service. And so UCSF was the second hospital that I went to, and it was clear that their team-based approach was just, oh, it just gave me so much more reassurance. And then I later found out that they were like a national, um, what is it called? The national... I can't remember the name either, but I know what you're talking about. These are the dedicated cancer centers that are a higher status kind of... Yes. So do you recommend that people look for one of those? Is that kind of how you knew that this was just a very high quality care team or how how could we help people evaluate that? Yeah, that's not an easy question. And I I tell you, I was given two pieces of advice by my brother consulted some of his colleagues at his university when I was first diagnosed and still in the Hudson River Valley at that time with no plans to go down and join him. And He gave me two pieces of advice. One, get yourself to an academic medical center. And the second piece of advice is also choose a hospital which has an expert in your particular cancer. Mm. Don't just go to any cancer center. Find a place that's really good at what you have. And as it turned out, there was a guy there who was kind of a rising academic star in the field. And he came highly recommended. And I and and so that also factored into my choice. And then as it turned out, he was one of the few, because I've met a lot of rising academic stars, and, and they're not always the people you would want to have as your doctor, you know, if you know what I mean. But this guy was a real mensch, and he was he was just a, a wonderful human being. Honestly, it was kind of like going to where my brother was, which was a one of the best medical schools in the country, as is UCF, by the way, or university, I mean, where, where you went. Yes, um, amazing. That was part of it. But part of it is that this is just what made sense logistically. I could live with my family. It was close to the hospital. So it was almost like I found out about this guy was there, but kind of the decision was already made. And I kind of feel like, you know, this, this business I talk about in yoga, that certain things just align. Mm. And this felt like just one of those things where the universe just aligned with what I needed at that point. Right. And that's a little airy fairy selling perhaps, but more and more I have found in my life that the things that need to happen kind of just happen when they need to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, it was very clear to you, which I applaud you for this, that, you know, once you had the opportunity to stay with your brother, you knew that that emotional support and that family support would be integral part of your treatment, like that it would be a very important part of your care to be with them. Absolutely. And, and just to be 
in uh, a lovely home and, uh, you know, that, that itself was brought into being with a lot of love, that all just kind of radiated out. Absolutely. So what was the course of treatment and how long did it take? Well, and so this was another kind of interesting aspect of the story, which is, of course, I did a bunch of research. And one of the things that happened was I got diagnosed right before Thanksgiving 2016. I kind of knew the ball tends to roll slowly, that it would take me potentially a while to get even an appointment with an oncologist, et cetera. So when I made the decision to change and get treated in another state, my health insurance was not portable. So I had to switch to another plan. And, and basically what made sense was I switched, you know, basically I was, you know, an ACA plan and I switched for the beginning of the following year. So suddenly I found myself with a month. So what I did was I grabbed a ton of research and books and flew off to India and got a month of Ayurvedic treatments to kind of prep me for what I was about to have to go through before I even arrived down south. Wow. And in that time, as I read through many scientific articles about my cancer and its treatment, I kept on coming across this word that I hadn't heard since the tail end of the Vietnam War. And that word was de-escalation. Basically, the rage of all the research studies of HPV-related oral cancers is that the treatments are too toxic. The people often do well, but if they do, they may have to live 20 or 30 years with a permanently dry mouth, with their teeth rotting out, with swallowing difficulties, you know, major lifestyle effect affecting symptoms. And so all these trials underway to try lower doses of chemotherapy or lower doses of radiation or some combination of them to see if they could find something equally effective, but less toxic. And so I very much came in feeling like I didn't want to take the full dose that they were going to recommend. And I wasn't sure that my doctors would go along with that. But one of the ways that this guy, you know, down south uh, proved so great as a physician was he was willing to involve me in the decision making in a way that any of his colleagues would not. And, And so I got to have a lower dose than they recommended. I ended up getting close to the dose of radiation they recommended, but I did it a little differently. And I specifically asked them to give the radiation therapy differently. So typically, when they're trying to put radiation on your tonsil and your lymph nodes in your neck, the parotid glands, which are the main salivary glands that make the saliva in your cheek, get hammered. And at the dose they were planning on giving me, there was a very good chance that I would never have any moisture in my mouth for the rest of my life, basically. Mm. It was like looking really bad. And so so I wanted to lower the dose. That was part of the reason. But another thing that I asked them to do, which they ultimately ended up doing, although I wasn't sure of that right away, was I got them to redirect the radiation therapy coming more from below, which meant that my tongue got it really bad and my thyroid got it pretty bad. 
but my parotid glands, the salivary glands, and my cheeks were relatively spare. And that was something that I found out about in my research and lobbied for and got. Hmm. And I found out about lower doses and I lobbied for it and I got it. But I worked on a compromise with my uh, with the Renee oncologist who was so wonderful. That was kind of something we could both live with. Wow. He was, he thought what I was suggesting was too low. And I thought what he was suggesting was too high. So we ended up kind of meeting in the middle on that. The other thing I did was I found out some studies. So the drug I was going to be taking, the chemotherapy drug that was I'd heard would be recommended was this drug called cisplatin. Now cisplatin is a notorious drug among cancer patients, sometimes referred to as cisplatin, hmm. because it's the most nauseating of all the chemotherapy drugs. So I was really kind of dreading that. And it had other potentially serious side effects. So I found out about a de-escalation trial where instead of giving high-dose cisplatin three times, weeks one, four, and seven of radiation therapy, as it's usually done, they instead gave a lower dose weekly for all seven weeks. And what my research suggested was that dose seemed to be equally effective, but way less in the way of side effects. And, and, but it's not what my oncologist wanted to do. This is different from the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist who was in charge of the chemotherapy. It was not what she wanted to do. So I had to you know, assert myself to, to get that as well, but I eventually got it. And I did a crucial thing as part of my treatment, which is I fasted, which is another you know, yeah. treatment I had found. But I fasted before my chemotherapy, which was a little bit harder because I was getting a week. But... I ended up having zero nausea and vomiting on cisplatin, none. And how do you think, do you have any sense of, I, I have heard of fasting before chemotherapy. Unfortunately, I didn't have to do chemotherapy, so I didn't look into it very deeply. But, but do we, does anyone know what the mechanism is that, that it helps with side, mitigate side effects? Yes. And by the way, it doesn't just mitigate side effects. It potentially also boosts the effectiveness of both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And so this has to do with the nature of cancer cells and how they make energy. So basically, normal cells burn oxygen for most of their energy, and the mitochondria are the parts of the cells, the organelles, as they're called in the cells, that burn the oxygen and make the ATP, which are the source of energy in cells. Okay, but in cancer cells, the mitochondria are severely deranged and they can't metabolize oxygen normally. So cancer cells choose a different way to get their energy, which is that they ferment sugars. They take sugar out of the bloodstream and they ferment it. And that's their energy source. Okay. So what happens when you fast is normal cells go into kind of a protective mode. And in that protective mode, side effects are less likely to happen. So some of the mice research, there were no human studies, only mouse research. Some of the mouse research I read suggested that doses of chemotherapy that were lethal when the mice were eating normally were tolerated when they were fasting. So fasting protects normal cells, makes them less subject to the dangers of the side effects of both radiation 
and chemotherapy. And they've, they've been studied independently and together. And because the cancer cells have to consume glucose, they have no other choice. When you lower the glucose, when you lower the insulin levels, which is the hormone that brings glucose into the cells, and cancer cells have more insulin receptors than regular cells by far. So when you fast, you lower insulin, you lower blood sugars, the cancer cells are put under duress because they're stuck in permanent high growth mode, hmm. turning over, turning over, turning over relentlessly. That's what cancers do. But when they're starved of glucose, they're in trouble. It makes them more susceptible to both radiation and to chemotherapy. Hmm. That is the best description I've ever heard. I've actually, I've listened to a lot of podcasts about fasting and I read a little bit about fasting. I do intermittent fasting myself now because study, there's a, there was a big study that came out that women who fast for just 12 to 13 hours a day, I mean, not a lot of fasting, but have a much lower recurrence rate of breast cancer. And that was the study that really kind of jump-started it for me. But, but that was a great explanation. I haven't heard such a clear explanation yet. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in order, I should say one more thing. So the, the kind of overnight fasting you're talking about, and I think that study suggested that the women who did 13 hours yes. or more, mm -hmm. there's definitely a more recurrence rate. Now, the thing is, this is completely in line with ancient Ayurvedic wisdom, hmm. which says, eat your dinner by about 6 p.m. and don't have anything between then and breakfast. No snacks, no, nothing. Just influence are okay, but no calories. Mm -hmm. And so, and I had already kind of been doing it, but I read the same study you did. And I, and I actually, I started saying, okay, not even a morsel after mm -hmm. dinner. I'm good. And if, because I do my yoga practice first thing in the morning, and it's pretty lengthy, I don't actually eat breakfast till 9 a.m. So I actually have 15 hour window every day where I don't eat. And then I eat all my calories in a nine hour period. But I want to say that that kind of fasting, which is definitely useful, is a little bit different than what I did when I fasted. Okay. Because you want to be in a state of ketosis. Okay. So you want to no longer be burning sugars for your primary fuel. You want to be burning fats, which are in the form of ketone bodies that are manufactured by the liver. You've got to be fasting somewhere between generally 12 to 24 hours before you hit ketosis. And, you know, the Nobel Prize in medicine a couple of years ago went to a Japanese scientist who discovered that fasting creates this process that's known as autophagy, autophagy, that's Greek for self-eating. And what happens is when the body's not digesting calories and putting all its effort into doing that, it instead starts to do housekeeping. Specifically, it gets rid of old senescent immune cells that are no longer really functioning optimally, gets rid of them and creates new stem cells. It kind of gives the immune system a reboot. So when you fast enough to put yourself in ketosis, then you have the potential of initiating autophagy. So that was the other piece and probably takes longer than just an overnight fast to get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I have actually, yeah, I have been doing the ketogenic diet for some time too, because for whatever reason, since cancer treatment for me, I think it's tamoxifen, my blood glucose levels have gone up. So I have had no choice but to mostly cut out carbs except for vegetables. But back to you, back to you. So 
Did you have to have surgery or did you just go straight into radiation? So surgery was recommended to me by the ENT doctor down at the hospital. Now, the, my ENT doctor up in New York did not recommend it, but the, the guy down south at the medical center I went to did recommend it, and he recommended quite dramatic surgery. He wanted to remove the tonsil with robotic surgery, and he wanted to fillet open both sides of the neck and remove all the lymph nodes in the front of both sides of the neck. Whoa. I started jokingly referred to this as a modified, a bilateral modified radical neckectomy because oh I gosh. felt like, and the thing was with a lot of surgeries, there isn't actually any evidence they improve your survival. And I thought if there's no scientific evidence to support this, I mean, it, and I, I was like, I'm not going to have it. And, you know, I, I told my radiation oncologist, when he first suggested I see anything or know as a throat doctor, that my intuition was that I didn't need surgery. And without quite saying it, he let me know that he agreed with me. Hmm. But I went and got the consult, heard the recommendation, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay in the control group on this one. Wow. Okay. And breast cancer, usually the course is chemotherapy, then radiation. Did you do it in that, in that order? It sounds like you did it at the same time. What they typically do in, in head and neck cancer is what they call chemo radiation simultaneously. So basically on the first day of treatment, I had my first radiation therapy session. They're going to give you the full dose, which is 70 gray that they recommend. And by the way, 70 gray of radiation. I looked this up is the equivalent of 700,000 chest x-rays worth of radiation. 700,000 chest x-rays worth of radiation. That's the dose they're recommending. See why that might cause some problems in your salivary glands? Mm. (laughs) Basically, I got the first infusion of the lower dose weekly cisplatin and my first session of radiation therapy the same day and then continued with five-day-a-week radiation therapy, and then once-a-week chemotherapy. And I ended up having six doses of the chemotherapy of the seven they had initially planned. By the sixth one, I was starting to get sufficiently immunosuppressed that they had to lower the dose of the chemotherapy. And then I ended up opting for a slightly lower dose of radiation than they were suggesting. And so I ended up going for a little bit more than six weeks of radiation. So anyway, so that, that was how I did it. Yeah. Getting to the part that that is will be so beneficial to people listening. How much did you do your regular asana practice at this time, and what were the different tools from your from your yoga and meditation toolkit that really helped you during the treatment? During the treatment, I was having to cope with the fact that the treatments are exhausting, and I was having you know a lot of pain, particularly toward the end of the treatment, and and so you know there were days 
when just standing and lifting my arms over my head felt like more than I could do. So I ended up doing some yin practices, which don't require any you know real active effort, just the kind of mindfulness to stay there and be there for the poses. I also ended up doing restoratives. And, and you know, one of the side effects I learned about, actually, and I, I was continuing to do research all through my treatments, and I only learned about this potential long-term side effect, fibrosis, stiffening of the tissues in the neck, which sometimes can happen years later and can be, from the descriptions, absolutely debilitating. Painful, interfere with swallowing, and so really bad. So I was wanting to do things that would maintain the range of motion in my neck. So when I was able to do standing poses, say, I started doing a variation of triangle pose, trikonasana, where I would turn my head down as I exhaled and turn it looking straight forward as I inhaled. I'm actually in the group of yoga teachers who don't think most people should try to look up at the ceiling in triangle pose. I know that everyone teaches that, and most people I talk to have never enjoyed doing that. Yeah, it's pretty and hard I'm, for most people. It's not appropriate for most people. I, I agree with that. that so I, I don't do that, but I just did this thing where with the inhalation, exhalation, I just turned my face down to look at my feet, then turned it up to look forward. And so I moved with the breath and triangle pose just as a way to try to bring neck movement. Now, the restorative pose that has been my bread and butter for the last 25 years is the Purta Karani, legs up the wall with the butt on a bolster. Mm -hmm. But what happened early in my treatment was the buildup of phlegm in my mouth made it impossible for me. After a minute in the pose, I would just start coughing and I would have to come out and my mouth was so pain and so much pain from the treatments that coughing itself was tremendously painful. It was like it was like a like an ice pick shot to the mm. mouth every time I coughed or sneezed or hiccuped or anything. So I couldn't do I couldn't do my mainstay pose. The pose I've always loved, but which I ended up doing more during my treatment than any time in my life, was Pran Bharat Vajasana, the twisting pose over the bolster where I you end up turning that in one. the same direction. Yeah. And so that was this beautiful stretch for my neck. And I would stay actually about 20 minutes on each side. And so that actually became probably the most helpful at yoga practice. Now, there were times when I was so wiped out, and this was the minority of the days, but there were times when I was so wiped out that I couldn't even do a sitting meditation practice. Some days I tried to do it lying on my back with kind of marginal results, honestly, but I, I, I tried. You know, what I did a bunch of, though, was chanting mm. because I felt that the sound vibrations of the various chants done at different volumes and different pitches, and of course the different words and sounds in the different chants would cause little sound wave vibrations throughout my mouth and nose and throat, which I kind of thought would be therapeutic. So I ended up doing quite a bit of chanting. And of course, one of the things you learn in chanting is that silently chanting also has some of the same effects where you can feel the vibration even though you're not making the sound. Not sure if you've ever tried that. 
but you can you can chant you can chant something out loud and then chant it silently. And if you tune into your inner awareness, you'll often discover that you can feel some of the same resonance when you're just imagining chanting as when you're literally physically chanting. Wow. So I did chanting and then just silent chanting. You know, and of course I did a ton of Ayurveda stuff. Neti pot would, you know, save my life because I was getting blood in my nose and then later my treatment clots coming out of one side of the nose and wake up every morning completely blocked up, use the neti pot once, cleared for the whole rest of the day. So that was incredibly helpful to me. And of course I used visualization, some of it kind of yogic, uh, some of it uh, from Qigong. Qigong, of course, is Chinese Tantra and in a way it's just, it's just yoga under another name, in my opinion. So I did, I did some stuff that came out of that. Yoga was essential. It was probably even more essential once I got finished treatments. And then I, you know, I moved to Vermont when I finished the treatments, decided not to move back to New York. And that's when I really started, because you know, they say it takes a year to get over fatigue from the radiation therapy. And was still having a lot of pain in my mouth and couldn't eat. You know, for the last several weeks of treatment, I could barely eat anything at all. I was down to just a couple of foods that I could get down. And in fact, I ended up eating and I hadn't even gotten, I wasn't even yet really aware of ketogenic diets at that point toward the end of my treatment. But I ended up effectively being in a ketogenic diet for the last 27 days of well, the period of my end of my treatment and then the first week out from treatment when the symptoms from the side effects of the radiation chemotherapy actually continued to progress. All that time I was eating so few calories and mostly what I was getting was fat and a little bit of protein that effectively was eating a ketogenic diet, keeping myself in ketosis that whole time, which mm. probably increased the effect of this treatment. But I didn't do it by design. I just did it because that was all I could eat. Right, right, right. It was out of necessity. Yeah, yeah. And, and I sort of felt like that was another place where the universe just took care of me. Mm. It like made me eat exactly what was the best thing for me to eat to keep myself in keto- ketosis. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you fared pretty well mentally and emotionally did you or did you were there some ups and downs and did you sort of come back to your yoga practice for mental and emotional part well my yoga practice has been medicine for me mentally and emotionally for a long long time Mm -hmm. and uh, you know one of the things that I think is so valuable about meditation that often kind of gets obscured in the message about how good it is for improving, you know, blood pressure and pain and other things, is that a dedicated long-term meditation practice really starts bringing whatever is buried in your your subconscious up to the surface and showing you things about yourself that you might not have been aware of. And so that's definitely been part of my work. And one of the things that happened to me my second day down south, before my treatments even started, I had just flown from India, got in a car in New York, drove all the way down south, uh, you know, was going to be meeting with my oncologist and Renee oncologist the very next day. So it was this totally crazy thing. And after meeting with them, I finally I went to my room in the house down south and did my yoga practice. And what happened was all this fear 
and terror just started welling up in me. No story attached, just the, like these raw emotions, just wrenching. Mm. Now I teach my students that when emotions come up in their practice, to just try to observe them non-judgmentally and be with them and watch them ebb and flow. And often if you can do that, the emotion will pass. Did not try to suppress it, not try to get try to avoid getting hijacked in the story you tell yourself about it. Just try to be with the physical sensation, the emotion. Well, I didn't have a story, so I didn't I didn't get sidetracked by that, but it was really tough. And unlike what I tell my students that the emotion will pass in two or three minutes, what happened to me was it lasted for hours. And fear turned into terror and my heart was pounding and you know i just stayed with it and i would just go into shavasana and just stay with it and when it started to obey and come up and do another pose and then the terror would return even more intensely and i would just try to be there with that this went on for hours like nothing has ever happened before in my life wow. now i think kind of probably what happened was that after i got diagnosed I got kind of into like, you know, intense pitta doctor mode, whatever you want to call it. I was just like, how am I going to deal with this? What research am I going to do? Where am I going to get treated? You know, now I got to get myself to India for Ayurvedic treatments, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm doing research. Now I'm reading a textbook on integrative oncology. Busy, 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 busy. And I think on some level, I hadn't fully left any space to feel that terror that I must have been having. Mm -hmm. And it just welled up in that moment. And you know what? I stayed with it and it rose like a tropical storm. And then kind of just as unexpectedly after a couple of hours, it just receded and it all went away. It seems probably like it's the years of practice that actually allowed it to come up. I feel like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think I can completely relate to that pitta mode you're talking about. Like you were in, you're in go mode. When you first get diagnosed, you have a lot of logistics to deal with. You get so many phone calls, you're so many tests and so much to learn and read about. It saves you in a way because you, you don't have to stop and process it quite yet, but it's also sounds like it was really beneficial that it did all kind of well up at once. And then you actually had the skills to be able to stay with it. That's, that's amazing. It wasn't easy. And when my body was asking me to hyperventilate, I just heard that message and didn't obey it. <laughs> I just slow and smooth, even though my body was totally ready to ramp it up. Mm, yeah. So you mentioned that several minutes ago that you, act, you did a, a month of prep in India right. before. So what, yeah. what did that involve? And I know that you have been to India before. Um, so did you go to a center where you knew the people and you knew kind of the, what the protocol would be, or was it a new place for you? So I have been going to Kerala, which is the state of the southwest tip of India, which some people think is the birthplace of Ayurveda, although other people in the north dispute that. I don't know the answer, but anyways, it's the place of ancient Ayurveda for sure. And I had met an old time, what's known as a hereditary vidyar, a doctor who learned from his father and grandfather who learned from theirs, who had an unbroken tradition going back generations. And I had met him 12 years ago and I had become his student. And I have spent between a year and two years 
with him in India in, in the past 10 years or so, 10, 12 years. And, and so, uh, and then I had his main Ayurvedic therapist. Um, I actually, he is my friend and I stay with his family and I'm the only one getting treated or maybe a few other people come in for like a little appointment. So basically I'm living in the house, eating family style meals in this totally loving environment in the countryside with clean air surrounded by bird song and coconut palms and banana trees. It's like kind of just this amazing place. And it's not an Ayurvedic center exactly. I mean, there's no sign on the door. It's just where, where I've been going and I went back. Now, the interesting thing is my Vaidyar usually refuses to treat cancer patients, particularly metastatic cancer. They don't want to touch that. They, they're not sure they can help, and they don't want to go there. Because I've been his long-term student, they made an exception for me, but they were actually a little bit nervous about it. And I just said to them, look, I'm not expecting Ayurveda to cure my cancer. Right. I just want to be balanced and in a good position to be able to withstand the heavy duty stuff I'm about to go through. And so, and they were, they were cool with it. And they, you know, they modified certain things. So now Kerala style Ayurveda is different than the Ayurveda that you read about in books in America, which is mostly North Indian Ayurveda. They don't do Panchakarma pretty much. They do other techniques, but they have very powerful techniques. Massage, not being the kind of gentle Abhyanga uh, massage that most of us are familiar with from, from Ayurveda in, in other parts of India and in the States, but actually a much more vigorous style of massages designed to open energetic blockages in the body. And that was the specialty of my Ayurvedic doctors. So I, I went for that. But for example, they laid off on the neck. They were concerned about, you know, and, and, and so we were in agreement about that. They just very lightly massaged the neck, but they didn't push it all there. They just did basically the same kind of treatments I've had many times before, just to try to bring me into balance as, as best they could before I went back. It's so smart. And it's by, like you by, nourished yourself before entering the fire, basically. And you know what happened? And this isn't supposed to happen. My tonsil and my lymph nodes got smaller during wow. the treatments. and. When I arrived there, and when my tonsil was first diagnosed, the tonsil was kind of covered with this gray film. And after a few days in Kerala, it turned pink and shiny. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Did you speak to your oncologist about the treatments before you went? You said that they were not as supportive of, of the integrative medicine. Well, as it turned out, I set up my appointments with the oncologists and medical oncologists down south before I left for India, but actually wasn't physically there. So none of them oh, even found right. out. Because, about you, because you had to switch the health insurance. Right. I, I had had the treatments before they even met me. And then, and, and I, by the way, the surgeon who recommended the radical neckectomy, I told him that my lymph nodes had gotten smaller when I was in India and he didn't believe it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's not possible. That's crazy that they would think it's not possible. That's actually, I mean, that's, that's really surprising to me. Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
Well, actually, and you want to know something even, even wackier than that. Three days before I left from India, another buddy of mine from medical school who's been into Qigong for decades recommended that I do this Qigong visualization where every time I inhaled, I imagined the tonsil and the lymph nodes were on fire. And every time I exhaled, I imagined that gray smoke was exiting my body. So I started to do that just before I left India. Wow. Even before I got to India, my nodes started shrinking just from doing that visualization. Wow. Wow. So, so again, you know, it's like, I'm sure they don't believe that's possible, but you know, and, and by the way, I had Krishna look at my tonsil and, and feel the nodes. Krishna is my Ayurvedic therapist. And he agreed that they were getting smaller. And actually, I didn't tell you this part of the story. In the middle of my month there, we needed to take an all-day trip to another city in Kerala, five hours in the train each way. And the next day, my tonsil was a little bit bigger. And, it, and after another week of therapy, it started to get smaller again. So it got smaller. Then when I was stressed, it got bigger. Then when I was back in therapy, it got smaller again. So it was like, and Krishna I totally agree with my assessment on this. Such a good reminder to just, <laughs> that's, that's such a good reminder of how important it is to just, to slow down and take care of ourselves. It's really yeah. a poignant reminder. And, and I of having something that I could actually observe. I could actually look directly at my cancer. Yeah. Wow. And then did you go back to Kerala after the treatment for more Ayurvedic care? I, I did. And, and in fact, you know, what ended up happening, and again, these things drop from the sky seemingly right at the moment you need them. So I'm sitting there a week out of my treatments in Virginia, just having finished my chemotherapy and radiation therapy, but still kind of sick as a dog, actually worse than it was during the treatments at that point. An invitation comes in for me to give the keynote address at this giant yoga conference in, in Great Britain for a year forward from there. And so basically, I got the idea, well, geez, I could fly to India for half the price from London that I could, that I could fly from America. So I called up Christian and we brainstormed this thing. He thought I should come for three months of treatment, which is by far the longest I'd ever gone for treatment. And so we basically planned that I would cap off my year with three months of treatments, like my year out for treatment, I'd cap with three months of Ayurvedic treatments, followed by three weeks of rest so that I'd be then ready to teach in England, which is exactly what I ended up doing. That sounds lovely. It was awesome. And, <laughs> and by the way, the book, I thought I might work on it when I was there. I brought my files just in case. It poured out of me. Andrea, you're a writer. So when I, you know, you know, you know what I'm going to talk about when I'm writing, I feel like at home, I feel like a thousand words is a good day. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Yes. A thousand coherent okay. words. Yes. Right. I wrote in three months in India, 250,000 words, almost without effort. It just poured out of me. I and, mean, that's, and that's what. Yeah, that in a way that doesn't surprise me because I think that we do our best writing when we really get into a flow state, you know, and we're really just like tapping into the source. And so you were there, you were totally in it. That's awesome. 
And it sounds like it was an enjoyable experience too. It wasn't like torture writing. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The writing just poured out of me without effort. And, and this really was like a retreat because the family is so loving and peaceful and sattvic and, and the environment is so beautiful. And give you a little background, since I know you, you guys talk about Ayurveda all the time, I'll, I'll go there. My vata, I believe, began to be out of balance when I was still a fetus. <laughs> in my arrangement began. And my situation was that I had a very I had some kind of childhood trauma and stuff. And my nervous system was very twitchy and my vata was elevated no matter what I did. It didn't matter time of year, time of day. It was always elevated. I've been taking my Ayurvedic pulse for 12 years and it has always been elevated. And I did so much stuff to try to bring myself in balance because of the cancer, you know, cutting out all added sugars from my diet the way you have. You know, I did a whole bunch of uh, body work called myofascial release, which was amazing. And I did, you know, further stuff to bring myself into Ayurvedic balance. And what happened was two weeks into that three-month stay in India, my vata came in balance I believe probably for the first time in my life. And it is now, it is, it is now 11 months later and my Vata has stayed in balance the whole time. It's wow. never gone out of balance again. Even when I was, you know, flying to London and flying back to America and teaching intense workshops and all this stuff, it stayed in balance. So like something happened mm. and it's just a kind of the cumulative effect of all these different holistic things I did. One of them, by the way, I should mention that I really got into when I was in India for that second trip was I got into increasing my breath capacity in pranayama. Now, I've been doing a daily pranayama practice for 18 years, so I built this up slowly over the years. But I started to do alternate nostril breathing. And every morning I did an asana practice designed to build my breath capacity. And then by putting certain breath holdings into it after the inhalation, after the exhalation, et cetera, and, and slowing down my breath as much as I could in, in various movements. And then I started doing this alternate nostril breathing with a 16 second inhale, a 16 second hold, a 16 second exhale through the other nostril and a 16 second hold. So a little over a minute, her breath and that had a huge effect mm. in calm nervous system and i think is part of the reason my vata came under under control nadi shodana is my ultimate ultimate favorite pranayama practice too and i've been doing it more lately because i feel like i'm a little very on edge so yeah that's yeah. interesting to hear does this make you want to go back to Kerala more regularly? Like, do you feel like, okay, this is a sign that <laughs> these longer periods of retreat are really important? Or do you feel like it I mean, kind of reset you and you just will need re refreshers or boosters? Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, I'm about to head off and go teach in Australia and New Zealand in, in a couple of months. And I've arranged to actually stop in Kerala on the way home and spend a month. So I'm, I'm not going to go back and you know, do almost four months as I did last year. That's a little bit not always realistic, to, even for me, where I, who has a lot of freedom in the schedule. 
to pull that off. But, you know, that's like a second home to me. And that family I stay with, I've watched their three daughters grow up. And actually, one of the consequences of writing about it when I was there was that I started to ask more questions about Krishna, about traditions, about all kinds of things I was seeing and I'd seen before, but maybe hadn't asked the question because I was kind of more in that writer's sense of wanting to know more. And as a result, actually, my friendship with Krishna deepened a whole bunch. And I got to know the family better than I ever had. I was also there longer. But so there was a way that there was a thing that I already felt at home there. And that experience made me feel even more at home there. Yeah, yeah, that's really lovely. So you're two, two years out then from your diagnosis. How are you feeling? And how, how are you feeling? And how's your, how's your practice right now? I'm feeling really good. I have managed to avoid almost all the side effects. I have some dryness of mouth, but not much really. I have to drink a little more fluid with meals than I used to. It looked like my thyroid might have been permanently damaged. It looked like I was on the road to that on the blood test I took before I went to India last year. But while I was there, I repeated the thyroid test and it came back to normal. So maybe I dodged a bullet on that, time will tell. My energy and stamina are back. My practice has been good. I, you know, I have been evolving my yoga practice in, in recent years. And I practice more softly than I used to practice. And I practice uh, in a way that's more about incorporating pranayama into asana and breathing more slowly and smoothly. And the net effect of trying less hard is I'm actually going more deeply into poses. And I also have a bunch of, I, I fell out of a second story window as an 11-year-old and I, my spine got fractured and fused in a whole bunch of places. So that's been a limitation of my practice. But the myofascial release I did and then the Ayurveda stuff and then my yoga practice has resulted in a whole bunch of new opening in the last year, which has been really awesome. And I feel that that slow breath duration, Nani Shodhana, has kind of infiltrated every part of my yoga practice. It's just slower, more mindful, more grounded. It's, it's just like my practice is qualitatively different. And I think, but by the way, I feel like my teaching is also deeper than it mm. was before. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure. So. Yeah. You sound so well. I mean, I can just hear it in your voice. I'm just so happy to hear you sound so well. And it's super inspiring to talk to you and and thanks for sharing with us. I want to I want to get the details on when your book is coming out and where people yeah. can get it. So basically um I just actually put it up uh it's going to be available January 1st 2019 just as a Kindle book to start. I was planning on publishing the hardcover shortly thereafter. But for complicated reasons, due to some backlogs of publishers, I'm actually going to wait until I return from India, which is in the spring. So it's going to come out on my birthday, which is May 2nd. That it's going to be a full cover, full color hardcover. That will come out May 2nd. But just the black and white uh, Kindle version is coming out January 1st. So you know, you, so you can you can look for those. And and basically, I'm self-publishing, so I'm definitely asking friends and colleagues to help me get the word out. I so appreciate being with you for, for that opportunity. And of course, it's just fun to chat. Yeah. I've seen you for a long time. I know. And, 
Well, I moved out of the Bay Area. It didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You're an East Coast guy now. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm so excited. I can't wait to read it. It's just so great to talk to you. And, you know, as I said, I'm just so happy to hear like the sound of your voice. I can just tell that you're happy and well. So it's great. Thanks for being here, Timothy. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. Thanks as always for listening. I'll put show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 130. And I will put links to Timothy's past books that he's written and then also to the Kindle edition that's available for Saving My Neck January 1st. And then one more quick thing before I go, which is I for my American listeners, I'm just wishing you the most wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Most people that I know, it's their favorite holiday because it's pretty low stress and you don't have to buy things for people and you get to just be with people who hopefully you care about and love, which means that stuff can come up for you every once in a while too. But just remember, you can do silent pranayama anytime you need to. And I always remind Jason that... And it's a reminder for myself, too, that you will never regret pausing and holding back on a really intense reaction and just reflecting on it. You might bring the thing that you were going to say up later, but you will always bring it up more skillfully and with more love if you just pause before you react. And that's what yoga teaches us. I'm also incredibly grateful to be able to produce this show and have people actually listen to it (laughs) and share it and respond. And I am just super, super, super grateful for all of you for this community. And I can't wait to grow this community even more. And I'm just, I've been trying in little ways to do that, doing little appearances here and events here and there. And I don't know, I just hope for more of that in the future. And I hope to come together and connect with you even more. Okay, that's it. Until next week, enjoy your practice.